Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Mitzi Perdue is a past president of the 40,000-member American AgriWomen, the nation's largest coalition of women in farming and agribusiness. She is also the widow of chicken magnate Frank Perdue and has been deeply involved in the Perdue family businesses from agriculture to trucking, which is a major division of Perdue Farms. Mitzi holds a BA with honors from Harvard, as well as an MPA from George Washington University. Over her career, she has authored 22 books, is a syndicated columnist with over 1,600 articles, and hosted her own 400-episode television series, Country Magazine, which was syndicated to 76 stations. She's the founder of Sierra's Farms, a real estate investment company that has owned rice fields, commercial and residential real estate, and successful vineyards. These days, Missy spends much of her time passionately fighting modern slavery as part of the global effort to combat human trafficking. She is the founder of WTF, which is an acronym for, yes, you guessed it, or, okay, maybe you didn't, win this (laughs) fight. At WTF, Missy enables wealthy donors to convert high-end jewelry or works of art into cash that is then donated to anti-trafficking organizations. Mitzi, welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast. What a complete joy to be with you. It's great to have you. We met at a C-suite radio virtual wine tasting event, and I thought you were really interesting and cool and wanted to interview you no matter what you had to talk about. <laughs> but at one point, you refer to yourself as the rice farmer who married a chicken grower. And I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that I did not pick up right away that you were Frank Perdue's widow. It took me probably a few back and forth emails until it finally dawned on me. Well, it's true. Uh, when we first met, we decided we decided to marry that night. And part of it was like joking, but that chicken and rice would go well together. Well, for our non-U.S. listeners who may not be as familiar, I'll just explain that Purdue Farms is the fourth largest chicken producer in the United States, generating more than $6 billion in revenue a year and employs about 19,000 workers. So pretty big business. And your husband, Frank Purdue, was the head of Purdue Farms, but most people know him as the face of it as well because he was a marketing pioneer appearing in his own commercials. So can you please tell us the story of how you met Frank? Oh, well, I was living in California and I was growing rice, but I went to a party in Washington, D.C., and I had to leave early and Frank Perdue arrived late. So there was only an overlap of 10 minutes, but it took. It was sort of like some enchanted evening and we decided to marry. Oh, my gosh. So romantic. It was because, you know, the first five minutes of our conversation was about how you know, both of us were divorced and we were discussing how we would never consider the possibility of the notion of the concept of, of remarrying. Mm-hmm. But then we started agreeing that, yeah, but that was a shame because yeah, it would mean growing old alone. But that was our fate because we'd never trust anybody again. And then he looked down at me and he said, 
I believe I could trust you. And I looked up at him and I said, I believe I could trust you. And the next five minutes, we're talking about what our marriage would be like. Wow. And when we did marry, we had known each other in person six weeks and three days. Oh, you're kidding. Not kidding. In fact, a favorite moment in life was uh, our church has a six weeks prenuptial counseling period, and we wanted to start the clock ticking. So when we called on Reverend Drazel in his rectory, and he said, I'm so happy for you both. This is wonderful. How long have you known each other? And I said, do you mean in person? And he said, well, yes. And I said, 36 hours. Oh, my gosh. And did he try to talk you out of it? He said that, actually, he got, he got all serious. And he said, you know, marriage is a sacrament. It's not to be entered into lightly. And he said, I can't agree to marry you until I've talked with each of you for an hour. And so he, he invited me into his private room and we talked for an hour. And a lot of what he was asking me was, what was my father like? And I described a man who was very successful. I mean, he founded the Sheraton Hotel chain, who was a very honorable, smart person, but wasn't very good at, at showing emotions. I mean, I think my siblings and I knew that he loved us, but he wasn't gushy about it, that he was capable of fantastic focus. And I just went rattling on describing as honestly as I could what my father was like. And at the end of the hour, Reverend Drazel said, do you realize that you've just described in every particular your future husband? Wow. In other words, that, that my husband had a lot, or my future husband, had a lot of the qualities that my late father did. Well, speaking of your late father, Ernest Henderson, he was the co-founder of Sheraton Hotels. You went to Harvard for undergraduate. What were you studying? Did you intend to get involved in your family's hotel business? Was that your initial goal? It wasn't. And this is, you know, this, this is so tied to the fact that in the 1960s, I don't think that, that women were expected to go into the family business. I really believe that it never crossed my father's mind. So, no, I studied government and I expected to have a career in government. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's hard to, I mean, I'm 79 years old and proud of it, by the way. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that's uh, yeah, so clear to me is how much things have changed. Because today, in a family business, you expect everybody to at least have the opportunity to go into it. But that wasn't the case back then. I was actually the first woman in my family to work. Amazing. Times have changed so much, it's just hard to imagine. Well, you have such a unique perspective because you've grown up and lived in the culture of these two major U.S. family businesses, the Sheraton Hotel chain and and the Purdue Farms business. What are the key lessons you learned from working with and observing both your father, Ernest Henderson of Sheraton Hotels and Frank Purdue as they created these major corporations? Well, I used to ask my father over and over again, and he'd give different answers depending on his mood. But I would ask him, how did you build such a big company? Because, you know, at the time of his death, he had 400 hotels. And we did sell the company when when he died. Mm -hmm. But he gave an answer which was just strikingly similar to the answer Frank Perdue would have given you if, if you had asked him, how did you do it? And both men said that it was the employees at every level that made the business a success. But to my mind, both of them gave that answer. But to my mind, 
that raises another question, which is, how do you get people to stay with you for life and go the extra mile? Mm. And that's where I think they were just, that's what I took away, that they put extraordinary effort into human, human relations. And I'll give you an example, if you'd like. Father told me that you know, the company began in, at the height of the Great Depression, and people were you know, running away from hotels. No, hotels were going bankrupt. If, if you bought a hotel, you were probably going to go bankrupt. So what made him different? How was he able to make a success of every hotel he ever bought? And he told me that it was his habit when he'd buy a new hotel and remember, this is during the Great Depression that it, that it got started. He'd invite all the employees, and there could be could be six or seven hundred of them. He'd invite them into the hotel's ballroom, and he knew ahead of time that everybody, you know, this is during the Great Depression, and that the people that he was addressing that first day, that when he'd take over a hotel, that they'd be very demoralized. They're they're all worrying: Am I going to keep my job? And if I don't keep my job, I'll never find another because there's twenty five percent unemployment. So father knew that, and he knew that they wouldn't really be paying any attention to anything he said because they were in such pain over, you know, what does my future hold? So he was smart enough to say that the first words out of his mouth were pretty much always, I want every one of you to keep your job, and I want you to keep your job because I know you know your job better than anybody else in the world. I know that that had to mean a lot to the employees because usually when somebody takes over a new company, they're, they're going to get rid of, quote, dead wood, and they're probably going to take care of their uncles, nephews, and cousins. But Father didn't do that. He didn't fire anybody, and he didn't bring in cousins, nephews, and uncles. No, he, he would have the same people who had been a part of the hotel that was going bankrupt, but he could turn things around because he'd tell them that his job was to give them the resources and the encouragement to show the world just how good they were. And he told them, you'll see, in a few months, this is going to be the most popular hotel in the city. It's going to be the most financially sound. We're going to be an example to the rest of the city that things can turn around. And you'll see, as a team, we're just going to accomplish miracles. Try to imagine what it would be like for an employee who walks into the ballroom afraid that that he's going to join the bread line and he walks out where the, the new owner says, as a team, we're going to be the best hotel in the, in the city and we're going to turn things around and your job is secure. So he gave them that faith, that he had faith in them and he made them feel safe. Yeah, but, you know, he figured that out. But the other people bu buying hotels, if anybody was buying a hotel, didn't know to do that. He also told me that once he had bought a hotel – the next day, he'd have decorators and plumbers and electricians and people who would like spruce up the hotel. But he told me that he'd never go to the areas that the public would see, the paying public, that the first money he ever spent on any hotel he ever took over was on the areas that only the employees would see, such as the dining room or the lockers or the showers or wherever else they were. So I asked him, why'd you do that? And his answer was because he wanted to communicate to them how important they were, how he believed in them. And he said, people have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. And this was a way of communicating to them that he believed in them by putting his first money in the areas that only affected them. And did Frank have a similar philosophy? 
Frank was, I would say, almost identical, but it showed in different ways. And uh, let me share a couple of examples. I love to give examples that everybody could copy, but this is something that I think would be difficult to copy unless, unless you have the gift. But Frank was able to remember thousands of names. And I got to tag, tag along with him when he'd have factory visits. And you know, we could walk along the line where, where people are working. And the number of names that he knew was just staggering. And Jim Perdue, by the way, can do the same thing. And he didn't just know the names, but he'd say, Mitzi, I'd like you to meet Delcy. And there's Delcy working on the line. And he'd tell me, Delcy's son just got into college or, or would go to Ronaldo. And he'd say, Ronaldo, he's been here for 30 years and never had a sick day. And yeah, how cool for you know, the big boss to be able to talk one-on-one with employees and remember what he knew about them. That is a gift. Yeah, and he often would have have lunch, and I sometimes did the same thing. He'd often have lunch in the factory cafeteria, and he could have, you know, he certainly could afford to eat anywhere he wanted, but he actually liked hanging out with the people. You know, he'd ask them how you're doing. Yeah, are they treating you right? He just, he just really cared, and I think that goes a long way. Yeah. Or other things that he did, which which I, I thought was just amazing. On weekends, you know, when other people are, are watching the game or doing errands or whatever you do on a weekend, here's what Frank and I would be doing. He'd get a list of employees, and we call them associates. He'd get a list of associates who were in the hospital. And, you know, if you've got, if you're employing 16,000, 20,000 people, you know, just on the law of averages, some people are going to be sick. We would visit them in the hospital. And it, it, it might be 10 different people. You know, how great that, that the big boss comes to visit you. And then if there was time left over, would call on people who were retired. Because as far as he was concerned, they were still important to him. They weren't getting a paycheck from him, but, but they were family. Well, Purdue Farms also, in addition to the farming, also has a huge trucking division. And you mentioned to me that if they were a standalone, they'd be the 50th largest trucking company in the U.S. Is that correct? That's what I believe. That's certainly what I've been told. Wow. Why did Purdue get into trucking? Frank, when, when Frank was first getting started in selling chicken to stores, there was a huge problem back then. And I think he may have been a pioneer in getting around this problem. But here's what would happen. He had this factory. It was, it was having like chickens that would be on their way to, let's say, supermarkets in New York. If you've got a factory, you need a, a fairly stable way of getting the product to the stores. Mm-hmm. But what would happen is, supposing that, I'm, I'm going to make up a, a hypothetical case, but I think it's realistic. Supposing that you're counting on a guy that you've, you've hired him, you've paid him X many dollars to take your chickens to New York, but it would happen back then, and I'm pretty sure it doesn't happen now, but it would happen that you know, whatever you were about to pay this guy, some desperate, and I'm making this up, but it's realistic, some desperate strawberry grower knows that if he doesn't get somebody to take his strawberries to market, that he's going to end up with slush. And so he offers your driver twice what you were going to pay him. And if you don't have to contract with the guy, and or maybe you even do, but if you're not his employer, you can't be absolutely sure 
that he isn't going to take the money from the strawberry grower and leave you high and dry. And that kind of thing, I made up examples, but that kind of thing happened often enough that Frank realized, you know, unless I get into the trucking business myself and I hire the people, I can't be a reliable supplier. And since being reliable was his one of his most important requirements for, for selling his chickens, he, want, he wanted the buyers to know if they bought from him that it would be there reliably and on time. And so he actually got into a business that he knew nothing about, but in the end hired, I'm going to guess, thousands of truckers. Or maybe I'm wrong on the thousands, but uh, a lot. I have to hear the story, Mitzi, of how you got the nickname Peach Blossom. <laughs> well, one of the things that Frank did, and this is on the subject of making people who work with him feel important. Mm -hmm. We had a program of trying to entertain every single person who worked for the company to have dinner at our home and would have them a hundred at a time. And it was really cool because Frank would wait on his employees. It would be a buffet and he would stand behind the buffet line and wait on them, which, you know, it's, it's another way of making people feel like family and feel that they're recognized that we knew that they were important. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the parties that we had was for the truckers and there could have been 150 of them, but it happened. We had the usual buffet. We had Frank waiting on the people, uh, Frank greeting all, all his guests, telling them how the, how the company was doing, thanking him for their work. But then it was the birthday of one of the truckers. And I'd made a great big super large sheet cake that would feed 150 people. I mean, it took people, two people to hold the thing. It you was, made it yourself? <laughs> no, it was, it was, I would have no idea how to make a cake that's okay. one cake that would fit <laughs> I didn't 150 know another people. one of your many talents. <laughs> uh, but, but, but a baker, you know, could do this, but it took two people to hold it. And there I am holding this cake and a trucker is holding like the other end of, of this great big, huge thing. Mm -hmm were about to sing happy birthday to the guy whose birthday it was. But I'm looking at the cake and I get this absolutely mm, devilish idea. <laughs> Wouldn't it be fun to have a food fight? Oh my God. So I took my finger and I scraped about an inch worth of frosting on my finger. And I looked at the truckers and we're all sort of friends by now. And I told them, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And they all said, yes. And I said, do you dare me to do it? And they all said, yes. And the next second, I slathered my finger full of frosting on the guy's face. And that started it. Uh, everybody was slathering fat frosting on everybody else's face and, and laughing ourselves sick over this because, you know, part of humor is doing something that's unexpected right. and a little bit wrong. Well, this is unexpected and a little bit wrong. And we were just laughing ourselves sick over it. And at the end of it, several of the, of the truckers told me that, hey, you all right. And they gave me the nickname Peach Blossom. Oh, I love it. But, okay. And I cannot tell you why they, I mean, it, the nickname should have been Food Fight. Yeah. <laughs> but, but instead they gave me a name that I'd be really happy with, Peach Blossom. Yeah, so that, that, that is my, that's my handle. Love it. It's so cute. And they must have felt so comfortable with you and your family. Oh, <laughs> 
All I can say is, um, you know, if I had to do it over again, I, m- I might have been afraid to even do yeah. it. But you can tell the vibe of a room if, pe- if people are kind of liking each other and having fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would not do this with a, a group of businessmen in you know, who are wearing their ties and right. three-piece shirts or something. But but the truckers, I mean, they were just cool. Yeah. It, I, I felt I could get away with it. Well, I love that photo I saw of you, uh, which actually I posted on my Instagram page, and I'll have to repost it, of you standing on, on a big piece of heavy equipment. Is that around the same time period? Oh, uh, yeah. That, that's me as a rice farmer, I think. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, you studied agriculture, agriculture real estate, and you founded the real estate company Cirrus Farms. Why did you decide to do that? Okay. It was actually, it wasn't the real estate. I mean, it was real estate, but I got into it because- when my father died, I was 27 years old, and he hadn't expected to die. I mean, it was a heart attack that took him in at 70, and you know everybody mm. thought that he'd leave you now many, many more years. So it was very sudden, and I came into an inheritance. I knew that I could have just put it in the stock market, but I was living in California at the time, and I thought it would be just more interesting and responsible and exciting to invest in agricultural land. And this we're talking somewhere around 1974 when I, well, actually my father died. I came into an inheritance in about 1970. And I spent four years studying agronomy, rural appraisal, agricultural accounting. I mean, just tons of stuff. And I joined, let's see, I joined Farm Bureau. I joined American Agriwomen. I just did everything that I could to learn about farming. And you know, for, for somebody from Boston who was a hotel heiress to get into farming, how about that's a pretty big leap. And is that when you started rice farming? It, it was 1974. Uh, it was really neat because I almost feel as if some of the things that I learned from my father really mattered for being in business for myself because I did everything I possibly could to make the people who were working with me, because I, you know, I wasn't out farming myself. I hired people who were experts, but I'd learned enough, you know, in four years of of study and hanging out with people in the business, I wasn't starting from scratch by when I was four years in. It seemed to me amazing, but, but the farms did well. And with the money that I made from one, I bought another. And today there are 12 vineyards. I did everything I could to make the people who worked with me feel appreciated and important. When you decided to get into agriculture, did you meet any kind of barriers because of being a woman during that time period? In theory, it should have been yes. At that time, there were roughly 5,000 rice growers in California, and I think nine were women. And I think only three were like out walking the fields and talking with, with the workers. So in a way, it could have been really difficult, but I had a different attitude. And my attitude was, help me. You know, yeah. I, I had no problem asking people for help. I wasn't, as best as I can describe it, I, I think I felt a lot of humility because here were people who knew a lot and I knew very little. And the end result was that there, were, there would be people who would, who would almost be he- holding my hand through times that were scary and advising me and I felt that I made friends who I could I could call them at eight or ten at night if, if there was a crisis. So I kind of felt that I was enough of a rare bird that I wasn't any threat to anybody. And then there was another thing that, that I think helped with popularity, and it's the following. 
there was legislation, and I think we're talking maybe around 1978, give or take a few years, where there would have been a ban on all agricultural burning. And that would have put me out of business like overnight because with rice farming in California, at that time, there was something called stem rot and it was a virus. The virus was so lethal to rice that if it got in your field and you didn't eliminate it by burning your fields after the harvest, you know, the next year you wouldn't have a crop. And if you don't have a crop, you, you know, there are all these inputs that you can't pay for and you're not paying the mortgage. And, you know, it's just, it's a hundred percent like death and destruction to, to your farm if, if you've got stem rot on it. And so up until that time, people had sanitized their fields by, by burning the agricultural waste. Well, that was a year in which there were days that were so smoky from the agricultural burning that there was actually a car accident that killed a person. The legislature, the California legislature was going to, was in the process of passing legislation that would have put us out of business by banning all agricultural burning. And at this point, I'm completely terrified because I'm thinking I invested my nest egg in, in this farm and I'm going to go bankrupt. This is the end of the world. What can I do? And I started thinking, you know, what could I do? And then it occurred to me, well, I have a background. I've got a university degree. What if I could write an article that would tell people our side of the story? And part of the side of our story is you, you put us out of business and we'll, we'll have to sell it. And the people who will buy it, like, I don't know, gas stations and laundromats and things, if when it's no longer agricultural land, it's going to be far more damaging to the environment than if you let us put our own house in order and make sure that there's, there isn't smoke on the scale that could cause a death. Well, I didn't have experience in writing at that point. So I went to the library and I took out a book called How to Write Magazine Articles That Sell. And I wrote an article that explained why we burned it and also explained how that it was a strange weather just a confluence of, of weather stuff that was unlikely to happen for another 600 years. And that, you know, do you want to, uh, I'm asking the legislature this, do you want to base legislation that will put a major agricultural industry out of business based on a weather circumstance that might not happen for another 600 years? I submitted it to an in-flight magazine with the hope that legislators would read it. And it became the cover story of the PSA magazine for that month. And it became required reading for the legislature and the dean of the Senate. This story's a little more complicated than I'm telling right now. But the end result was that he withdrew the legislation. And at that point, I become, you know, I may be a woman, but I'm, I'm like Joan of Arc as far as the, the rice growers were. Because, you know, I had helped solve just a huge problem that they were having. And... Yeah, so I had, by that time I had a lot of friends because in solving my problem I was solving theirs as well. Mitzi, thank you. This has been so fascinating. I know you have many more stories to tell, so we are going to pick up with that for part two of our of our interview, as well as getting into your TV show Country Magazine and your work against human trafficking. And for our listeners, thank you for tuning in to Hazard Girls. Stay tuned for part two of our interview with Mitzi Purdue coming next week. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media. 
sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.